Thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Your decision in pharmacy has a lasting impact. The daily decisions of people in our industry influence patients, affect families, and change our environment. That's why I want to tell you about AltiGuard Safe Pack, a product from Altimed that makes choosing which pen needle to dispense an easy decision. AltiGuard Safe Pack pen needles are an FDA cleared product that provides 100 premium pen needles in a sharps container, all in one convenient package system. When you dispense the AltiGuard Safe Pack, you protect families and your community from sharps injuries and you remove medical waste from the environment. To learn more, visit altiguardsafepack.com forward slash podcast. That's altiguardsafepack.com forward slash podcast. When you dispense the AltiGuard Safe Pack, you choose positive change. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. As you may know, I'm an attorney, I'm a pharmacist, and I advise companies with FDA-regulated products. So if you think about drugs, wonder about devices, obsess over pharmacy, this is a live stream for you. Um, I do have to specify, I am an attorney, my guest is an, is an attorney, but neither of us are your attorneys, so this is not legal advice. I am a pharmacist, but I'm not your pharmacist. This is not clinical advice. I do these live streams, these podcasts, these interviews, because they're a lot of fun, and I find myself learning something new every single time. So it's always great to know when someone's listening. So if you like what you hear, please like, leave a comment, please subscribe. If you want to ask our guest questions, please feel feel free to do so. Just send them in. Um, after the talk, please share the video. Um, I do want to emphasize these are considerations. They don't necessarily reflect the opinions of the host or the guest or their employers or even myself. Um, if you want to find me, you can always find me on Twitter, Darshan Talks, or just go to our website at darshantalks.com. Um, our guest today, our live stream today is going to be really fun. We've actually had our guests on before, and it was a lot of fun the last time, and it was actually very well received as well. So if you are interested in COVID, if you are interested in um, ivermectin and hydro hydroxychloroquine and why are certain drugs allowed while others aren't, um, if you want to talk about therapeutic options, if you want to talk about how to choose your medicine, which is coincidentally the name of his book, um, I, I welcome you to today's uh, interview. Um, our guest today is a professor of law and an affiliate professor of history at American University. I love the title affiliate professor because I have so many questions about what that actually means, but we'll have that discussion when it comes into it. But uh, our guest for today, Louis Grossman. Hey, Louis, how are you? Hey, nice to see you again. <laughs> Good to see you again. So, so let's start a little bit with the basics. First of all, you have a book out. Could you talk to us a little bit about... Um, why you wrote the book. So one thing that I think it's important to make clear is that it is sheer serendipity that this book was released in the middle of a pandemic. I started writing the book five, six years ago. Oh. Uh, and it is on uh, freedom of therapeutic choice as an idea in America and the way that it has affected American law and policy. And when I started it, I was focusing uh, more on efforts to obtain access to drugs that people wanted and types of doctors that people wanted 
as opposed to resisting compulsion. Uh, that is not because I'm not interested in resisting compulsion, but because there had been so much stuff already written about the anti-vaccination movement. But as I found uh, the COVID epidemic or pandemic descending on us, I all of a sudden found myself dealing with a very, very topical issue. And I've wrapped more and more resistance to compulsion into my, uh, my work as well as desire for uh, certain therapies. So I find that really interesting because you talk about um, forced action. I really want to get into forced action, but before we get into forced action, we almost need to talk about compelled speech, which is exactly what you see, for example, in cigarette ads, where they, they require you to have a, a statement on there saying that it's injurious for your health. What is, and, and I, I don't know of anyone else who would be more perfectly placed than you to ask about this, because you, you understand food and drug law, you understand constitutional law. Um, what is that, that balance, if you will, between um, compelled speech, when, is, when must it be compelled, and when is compelled action requirement to take a vaccine? And, and how do those balance out? So you're asking me to compare two things that I've never actually compared before in my head, compelled speech versus compelled action. Uh, and of course, compelled action uh, is a huge spectrum in and of itself, ranging from having a needle stuck into your body to you know, waiting for the uh, red light to change before you cross the street. And so I don't know that I have some kind of grand theory of connection <laughs> between compelled speech uh, and uh, compelled action. Um, I will say that um, both are referred to uh, within the constitutional uh, U.S. Constitution itself. Uh, we have a First Amendment that uh, guarantees free speech, and we have a due process clause that guarantees uh, liberty, um, and liberty uh, concerns uh, what you can do and what you cannot do. Um, but I'd have to think more about whether there's any kind of useful overlap between the legal analysis of those two issues. I appreciate that. And that's the, that's the weird thing about this podcast. We ask questions that we kind of go, oh, I haven't thought of that one before. Um, yeah. so I will say, by the way, that yeah. you know, uh, for, for your listeners, uh, one thing that's interesting is that uh, um, within the world of commercial free speech doctrine, which we can talk about as, as much as you want and maybe on, an, on another day as well, um, that uh, in general, uh, the government has, uh, is less restricted in compelling you as a manufacturer, at least, to uh, say certain things in your labeling uh, than it is to, uh, it is more restricted in telling you that you can't say certain things in, in your labeling. So there's an economy there, too. Explain that a little bit. What, what do those words actually mean um, from a constitutional law perspective, where the government can force you to say certain things, but cannot force you? So, so repeat that out for me. Express it out. Well, I mean, they can force you to say certain things. Right. One thing that's interesting, and we're getting far afield of, of COVID here, but you know, for most of American history, until the middle of the 20th century, commercial speech was deemed not to be protected by the First Amendment. And it's only in the past you know, seven decades or so that commercial free speech doctrine has arisen. But it is not subject 
restrictions on commercial speech are not as protected as, uh, or commercial speech is not as protected as, for example, political speech or artistic speech or scientific speech. But there is a, uh, so it's, uh, it's protected, but it's not as protected. And then there's the issue of whether or not uh, the government can require, for example, a manufacturer to put something on the label to prevent the consumer from being misled in some way. Uh, and I don't want to start spouting case names, but there is a separate case that, um, that puts the government at even a lower level of scrutiny when it comes to mandating that sort of speech. So, so you, you touched on this, and you, you, we, you and I had a quick conversation about this before we uh, started, but I have to touch on this for those people who are in medical affairs. Because what you talked about is the difference, the differing standards between scientific discussion, which almost is exempt from government scrutiny, uh, if, if it's done appropriately, or at least I guess it's not. That's not true. What I uh, what I meant to say is it's um, it's based on you have a heightened level of scrutiny uh, for scientific discussion versus commercial speech, which the FDA very much has authority to control and, and allow you to speak. To me, to me, that speaks to the distinction between what sales reps can say and versus what um, um, what medical affairs can say. Could you talk a little bit more about that distinction? Why it matters? Why are those? Why is there almost a um, a, a completely different set of laws that that apply? And what does that mean as we start getting into a place where? Um, Physicians go, I don't trust pharma. And, and the, I, the, bringing in the issue of trust, how does that tie into this idea that even though both are coming from pharma companies, they're, one of these is not like the other? Well, let me start by saying that um, the courts have been pretty uh, uniform in deciding that even something that looks on its face like scientific speech will be regulated as commercial speech if it is disseminated by a pharmaceutical company. And so uh, we end up in the odd situation, uh, although it's been you know, loosened up by, by some decisions, where uh, the only people in the world who are not allowed to uh, disseminate information about, for example, off-label uses of drugs are the company itself. Now, I will say that um, uh, some judges have recognized the awkwardness of this situation and do now allow uh, pharmaceutical companies to disseminate purely scientific information uh, um, uh, and have limited the government's ability to restrict that dissemination. Uh, but it is still uh, not treated the exact same as if you or I or Stephen Hawking or whoever were to be talking about scientific information. Which, which really bring, brings the question of during COVID, we had situations where, um, and, and now I'm getting into the ethics meets law discussion, which is really very much your bailiwick. So uh, I, I expect you'll be okay, but feel free to go. I, I don't really know. Um, but when we start talking about um, COVID and we start talking about situations like hydroxychloroquine and we start talking about ivermectin, do you think 
that if there was a branded company that made those products, and I don't believe there are anymore because these are really ancient drugs, do you think that they would have had a duty to disseminate or correct incorrect information to the to the extent it exists? So, so that's a very very uh, tough question. When a uh, and it really doesn't matter, does it? Whether it's a branded company or a generic company, um, the duty, if there is one, I, th I think would apply to a generic company as well. But when a company has the duty based on widespread use of a drug uh, off-label to, uh, to say something. And uh, all I can say is that, you know, companies are kind of between a rock and a hard place in that situation because by talking about an off-label use, you're talking about an off-label use. <laughs> you're not supposed to be doing that without FDA's, uh, um, you know, you're not generally not supposed to be doing that. I would advise any company that's in any situation like that to talk to FDA and sort out a solution uh, to that problem. But you, you raise another interesting thing about um, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Um, there's been a long recent history of, first of all, I want to point out that anti-vaccinationism has always been closely linked to desire for uh, unorthodox therapies. Uh, they're the yin and yang of each other. And so this is not new, the notion that people who oppose mandatory vaccination would also uh, want access to um, alternative uh, treatments. What's an interesting twist here is, as you said, um, ivermectin and uh, hydroxychloroquine are, they're not you know, natural products. They're not uh, alternative medicine. They are old orthodox drugs that are sold completely legally on label for certain conditions. But nonetheless, the passion that people have developed for these as um, treatments for COVID-19 uh, bear similarities to the way that people uh, fight for, fought, for example, the, the alternative drug Laetril in the 1970s or other alternative remedies. And I find this kind of an intriguing phenomenon where it's kind of one foot in the scientific world and one foot out, out of the scientific world. And um, I think a, what a large part of what's going on there is suspicion on the part of some that um, uh, that the pharmaceutical industry is in some way suppressing information about these alternative remedies in order to goose their own profits. And that is a longtime theme in American freedom rhetoric, too. The notion that uh, there is an unholy alliance between the government and private interests, be they the AMA or pharmaceutical companies, to kind of profit off American bodies. And I think that's a large part of what's going on here. Um, the fact that they're generic is very, very important to the rhetoric around them. But then that takes us to uh, monoclonal antibodies, which are not generic. Um, and I don't know whether there's as much enthusiasm amongst the anti-vaccination community for monoclonal antibodies as there is for 
ivermectin uh, ivermectin and as there was for hydroxychloroquine but that is uh mon the the relevant monoclonal antibodies are being disseminated according to an EUA they are not FDA approved they are very much on patent they are extraordinarily expensive and yet from what i've heard there are some sectors of that community who are all in on monoclonal antibodies at the same time that they are uh, virulently against uh, vaccines. And I just find that an interesting comparison, especially since, you know, uh, monoclonal, monoclonal antibodies are developed through the most cutting edge technologies, including genetic engineering. Um, and so there, it is interesting to kind of consider, well, why enthusiasm for those and not for these? I don't know <laughs> if you thought about that. I've thought about it a little bit, but I, I guess in my head, it, it sort of connects to this idea that um, we, and then the FDA has put out a, a bunch of letters on this, on, for example, stem cells. And, and you, you see people uh, coming out with, with potential stem cell therapies, and the FDA has come out um, multiple times and, and commented on what are the limitations associated with that and the types of claims you can make. And essentially, the FDA said that we're practicing enforcement discretion. So to your point, I think that there is a very large community of people who go, we believe in, uh, in a certain therapy. You, FDA, are just dragging your heels, or you are in big pharma's pocket, and you aren't letting me have access to this. FDA, meanwhile, is going, we just don't have enough data yet. So... Uh, so we're not going to stop you. We're just going to see what you do. And to me, monoclonal antibodies are an offshoot, shall we say, of that. But I, I, I don't know if um, that's not completely accurate. And then I'll, I, I'll add one more component to that because I know you're already itching for a response. I'm going to let you have that response in a second. But to me, it's similar to the world of biohacking. Um, I've had to advise clients who are going... What stops me from injecting something into myself and putting a, a credit card chip into myself versus trying to give myself night vision, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The idea being, can, can I biohack myself? Are stem cells, biohacking, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and monoclonal antibodies all cut from the same cloth? Or are they completely different issues with completely different thought processes behind them? What, what, what do you think? So, I mean, and then I would also add to that spectrum the truly alternative remedies that are being uh, bandied about, like uh, what's that called, like silver colloidal something, yeah. right? Um, are they all part of the same phenomenon or are they parts of different phenomena? And yeah. I'm not really sure of the answer to it. But I will say that, you know, if you look at the history of, for example, activism over unapproved cancer drugs, mm -hmm. um, some phases in history, especially the, the uh, 50s and 60s, uh, the general mode of, of boosting these was to embrace the, uh, the appearance of science, to say that they were developed in labs and that uh, an esteemed scientist is the inventor and another esteemed scientist is promoting it. Um, Whereas in the 1970s, alternative medicine uh, or alternative cancer cures really took a turn. Uh, and you can see that in the history of Laetril itself, which 
started its life as kind of a alternative pharmaceutical product and ended its life as a, uh, a supposed vitamin. Uh, and uh, there was a great deal of uh, bipartisan support um, for that. Um, what's interesting about something like monoclonal antibodies um, is that on the one hand, people are embracing them as a superior alternative in their minds to uh, mandatory vaccination. Um, and they therefore are embracing the, the skill and insight and development of the American pharmaceutical industry. But they are also at the same time rejecting uh, the notion, and I don't mean this in, with respect to monoclonal antibodies in specific, but just in general, they, they don't want to uh, postpone trying this stuff until uh, full, um, uh, you know, adequate and controlled studies have been completed. So they're buying one part of orthodox, you know, clinical drug development, uh, but not the other. And I will say, by the way, that monoclonal antibodies um, are, are, I think, uh, sold pursuant to an EUA. Uh, and so the FDA has taken a, you know, a look at them and decided that there is enough evidence to, to sell them. So we're not talking here exactly about some kind of, you know, wacko product that has absolutely no basis for efficacy. So, so it's interesting you, you talk about wacko products. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm using that to be provocative, but I'm going to raise the next question because that's really the title of your book, which is choose your medicine. And, and again, can you show the book just so we're on the same page? There you go. That's the book. You can buy that. Where can you buy that again? Do I look like a Price is Right <laughs> you're, product you're, display? There yeah. you go. You, yeah. you look like the next generation of Price is Right, uh, yeah. uh, Vanna Whites, if you will. Yeah. So, so the good news, uh, the, the bad news is there seems to be uh, a little bit of a supply chain issues with my book. It's so, it's so hot that if you go to Amazon now, they say, we'll be in stock soon. Um, but you can buy it. Uh, um, it, it was released uh, last week, and it's available from Amazon or directly from Auction University Press or from your local independent bookseller. Uh, they can get it for you as well. Congratulations again. Um, so so let's talk a little bit about that. We're talking about, um, about, about wacko potential therapies. What is your opinion about, and I don't know how to pronounce it right, it's Kratom, I guess, or Kratom, K-R-A-T-O-M, and the FDA has, has expressed some concerns about it. And some people say that the FDA is hiding something. Some people say you're, you let opioids stay on the market, but you won't let Kratom uh, on there. What is your take on why should, say, a Kratom be allowed, but, uh, sorry, not be allowed, but an opioid should? Well, let me say that I haven't really looked into that issue very much, and so yeah. I don't know whether I want to uh, spout off on something that I'm not Let, really let's, informed about. Let's ignore the two products. I guess what, what I'm really asking about is a difference between... I guess I want to get into the... Uh, to educate people in general about the idea of risk-based risk approval and how the FDA makes those, uh, makes those decisions. 
Um, as an academic, as someone who's been an FDA regulatory lawyer, could you talk a little bit about, um, is there such a thing as absolutely safe? Is there such a thing as you, you meet this bar and now you'll definitely get approved? Um, and, and some products fail to do that and other products go past it and, and how that plays out. So, so the answer is absolutely not. There, there's no um, uh, platonic uh, standard for uh, safe and effective. Uh, safety and effectiveness are weighed against each other in any uh, FDA drug approval decision. And there's a lot of objective science behind determining how safe the drug is and how effective the drug is. But ultimately, the decision as to whether or not to let the product on the market and let patients and their physicians do the ultimate risk-benefit analysis or uh, to keep it off the market because the government has decided that no rational physician or person uh, should um, ever decide to take uh, the drug because the risks so outweigh the benefits. That line is a political line. It's a, it's a subjective line. And for all the talk about FDA as a scientific agency, that ultimate decision that they make, um, which is whether or not to approve a drug or not approve a drug, is soaked with judgment. And I, I, I really, really emphasize that to my students because ultimately how much risk we're willing to take in order to potentially get so much benefit is, is not a scientific judgment. It's a political and, and personal judgment. And let me make clear that I don't, I'm not therefore saying that FDA should let everything on the market. Um, I think it's a fuzzy line, but I think it is a line. Um, and, um, you know, then there's two different issues. There's one, uh, if you're talking about a product for which there hasn't been a full panoply of clinical trials done, um, whether there's enough scientific information for anybody, FDA or a doctor or patient to make that decision. And then there's the very different question of if all the clinical trials are completed, who should make that decision? And I will say that in recent decades, it's become a much more nuanced thing. It used to be that FDA had two choices, thumbs up or thumbs down. But now they have a lot more control over the distribution of products in a way that allows a more nuanced decision, which is we're going to approve the drug, but we're gonna restrict its distribution in this way, or we're gonna educate doctors and patients in this way. Um, and so it's become a, a, a in, in actually a much more subtle decision-making process than it used to be. Which, which is really interesting. I mean, I, I think about everything starting from um, the, the, the bad ad program, where the FDA started saying, we want to teach doctors, we want to teach pharmacists, we want to teach nurses, um, what constitutes a bad ad? So that, that, to your point, the FDA has started making inroads into communicating with healthcare professionals when several decades ago, there, there was almost this, we approve, you prescribe. And, and that line, as you're pointing out, is becoming more and more fuzzy. Um, right, right. The, the and if I can interrupt for a please, second, please. of course, one of the huge ironies, if that's the right word, in the entire FDA system is that even when FDA had this thumbs up, thumbs down 
power, which it still formally has, although it tends to use it with more nuance. But uh, when they had this thumbs up, thumbs down power over drugs, once a drug was approved for one use, doctors were free to prescribe it for any use they wanted. That's called off-label prescription. And that's still uh, completely legal. And that's still, by the way, true with respect to um, ivermectin um, and hydroxychloroquine. Those drugs are available for their on-label uh, conditions, and doctors are free to prescribe them uh, off-label. So there's this entire world of medicine that has not been subjected to the same clinical research that on-label pharmaceuticals have been. This includes off-label prescriptions of medicines. It also includes, for example, many surgical procedures. There's, a lot, there's lots of things that people do, uh, surgeons do in the operating room that have never been subjected to controlled clinical trials. Sometimes because even coming up with what the control would be in a situation like that is very difficult to imagine. It, it's funny. The, the guest I had last week um, was an ex-FD attorney, and she worked in the Office of Unapproved Products. To actually have an office that has Office of Unapproved Products speaks to the point you're making, which is not everything gets FDA approval. Doesn't mean that it doesn't work. Doesn't mean that... Uh, it's the risks are greater than the benefits. It just means it hasn't been approved. Um, but and, you know, alternative medicine advocates had been pointing out for years, you know, this is kind of like the Achilles heel um, for FDA, which is FDA says to an alternative medicine manufacturer, um, no, it's we treat everything the same. Um, uh, we don't care if you're alternative or orthodox, whatever. We want clinical data. Uh, right. And the comeback is often, well, how come you allow all this off-label prescribing without clinical data? Uh, now, the, now the Office of Unapproved Drugs is, I think it's a more technical, like there's a, there's a body of drugs right. that because of strange yeah. developments in the history of the implementation of the Food and Drug Act remain on the market. Yeah. But I don't want listeners to think that there's like this office out there that is like overseeing this vast universe of, you know, specially treated products that, you know, uh, don't have to play by the rules or something. I appreciate that. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, I have several more questions, but um, I know what we usually aim for 15, 20 minutes and we are already at 29 minutes. So um, we do need to start closing up, but we have a couple of questions for you, as you know. The first question, what would you like to ask the audience? I'd like to ask the audience, at what point for the audience does COVID-19 become the flu? And what I mean by that is something that is with us, something that is literally life-threatening for certain people, but something that you don't um, let disrupt your life to the point where you uh, don't go to the movies anymore. Uh, I mean, to me, that's a big marker. It's like, when are we going to start going back to the movie theater? For yeah. years and years and years, I went to the movie theater in February during yeah. the height of flu season. <laughs> and and it, I didn't let it stop me. At what point do, do we accommodate this risk, we were talking about risks before. 
At what point do we start accommodating this risk in our society in a similar way? Um, that's my question for the audience. That's a great question. So I'll, I'll answer it first. The audience members are welcome to answer it as well. Um, but my answer would be, I think we're already there. I think movie theaters are open. I actually go to the movies and people actually, I, these movie theaters are full. Um, I've got Janam commenting. It's starting to be treated like the flu already. People are so over it. I live in the South. Movie theaters are back, concerts, et cetera. So it's already happening. Um, so Although I'd like to see the opening weekend numbers for the new James Bond movie. And, 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 and I mean, it did open this weekend, I think, or it's it opening did. Please. But here's uh, my question. Is it a commentary on the James Bond movie or is it a commentary on the opening numbers and the time it's being released? Um, but Shang-Chi movie, for example, did really, really well. Um, but to your point, could it have done better? And that's always a tough question, right? Could it have done better? Um, and, and, you know, even just from an economic perspective, especially when you're talking about the restaurant business, they operate on such a narrow margin of profit that even just you know a few percentage points, let alone a 10 or 15 or 20 percentage point drop in business can be fatal. Yeah. Um, you know, we can have a whole other discussion about, about the movies and what the future of movies is. Um, but, but I will tell you that I have lots and lots and lots of friends and relatives who have not been to the movies since March 2020 and have no plans to go anytime soon. Oh, that's really interesting. I seem yeah. to be having the opposite experience. Everyone I know is gone. And, it, it, and I'm in Philly, so, so that's interesting. I know a couple people who are cautious, but I know people who have gone. Um, so I also think, um, so, so I also sometimes go to, to um, the Delaware, the, to, to lower Delaware, and they are vehemently opposed to the idea of wearing, of wearing masks. Yeah. They, they consider that to be a curtailment. And again, we're speaking generalities, obviously. But um, they, they see that as a curtailment of their rights. Right. So, I mean, although it shouldn't be, nobody should deem it as a, a curtailment of their own rights if somebody else chooses to wear a mask. I hope people can look past that level of, of tribalism. Um, but I will say, by the way, that um, uh, there are other societies on Earth where mask wearing is very, very customary. And when I start to think about what ways our society is going to be different uh, after the COVID or after the COVID crisis than yeah. before, um, in addition to wondering about movies, uh, in addition to wondering about uh, the rhythm of the work week and working from home, I also wonder about masks. And I wonder, you know, I went to Shanghai a number of years ago, and it was the norm for people to be uh, wearing masks. I mean, actually, especially in Beijing, but also in Shanghai. Uh, um, are we headed in that direction? I, I don't know. This is just a personal opinion. I don't see it yet. Um, I see why you say that, but I'm just not sure I'm seeing it yet. Janan's responding, it's, it's definitely relative to the risk and who we're risking. My kids are back in school with masks, so my thought is, why not go to a pumpkin patch? A year ago, I wouldn't have, though. So it, yeah. if you're already taking certain risks, maybe you'll take more, is really what it's coming down to, is, is what I'm thinking Janan's saying. Yeah, and Americans are terrible at risk assessment, absolutely awful. Um, 
any one of you out there who's riding a motorcycle, I'm not telling you not to ride a motorcycle, but if you compare the risk of road riding a motorcycle statistically to the risk of taking certain medicines that you're reluctant to take, uh, it is not even close. It's more dangerous to ride a motorcycle. There you go. Um, so, so next question, and, and this, we've asked this before, um, how can people contact you? And as, as part of that same question, how can they find your book? So they can contact me at my email address, Lewis G, that is L-E-W-I-S-G, at wcl.american.edu. I love getting inquiries and, and comments from uh, people I, I haven't met before. And my book uh, is, is just readily available uh, the way that you would buy any book. It is, like, it is um, you know, just a, a, a bookstore book now. Uh, online bookstore, regular bookstore, and I hope many of you will take a look at it and enjoy the stories that it tells. Very, very cool. Um, then, this is the question you've been dreading, is what you tell me. What is something you learned in the last month? So, did you know, and I, I haven't verified this on a map, that the western tip of Tennessee Uh huh closer to Canada than it is to the eastern tip of Tennessee. No, I did not. Isn't that an amazing fact? That is an amazing. I love this this question because I get the coolest facts. Um, <laughs> I, I just had someone else tell me that, did you know that an octopus had three hearts? Like, did not know that. So so this might be in that, in that same list. Of, oh. Huh. I mean, well, you know, an octopus has eight legs. Why not three hearts? I guess. But how in the world could this state that we think of as a, you know, a quasi-Southern border state? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I guess what it shows as much as anything else is how darn long Tennessee is. Again, not a state I thought that was particularly long. So so you, you, you learned something really interesting. Uh, how's, that for, how's that for profundity? If I knew what the word profundity meant, I would tell you. How's that for lack of profoundness? Oh, now that makes sense. Okay, now I'm with you. <laughs> uh, and last question, what's something that made you happy in the last week? So um, I'll turn to family again, as I did last time. Of course. Um, all three kids are out of the house uh, these few days, uh, and I miss them desperately and everything. But last night, my wife and I got, got to sit down uh, and watch a movie together, not, not at the movie theater, at home, and just sit there in a quiet house with the dog. And I felt like the rest of my life was staring me in the face, and it didn't seem at all unpleasant. <laughs> oh, my God, that is not the answer. I did not expect you to end with that sentence. I, <laughs> I mean, and, and by the way, the, that weird triple negative, that's an awful way to put it. It was delightful. <laughs> very, very cool. Actually, Janan actually just responded to your Tennessee question, which is, I'm from Tennessee. I think it's a 60 or so mile difference. Who knew? <laughs> Apparently the people in Tennessee know, which I would not have guessed that either. Um, yeah. And is she uh, 60, 60 miles or so? In confirming my fact, or my fact is not quite true. What do you think? I think she's saying she's confirming your fact. Yeah. 
I'm guessing. So she'll she'll let us know if she's not. No, and it also, by the way, goes to the weirdness of the U.S.-Canada border. Yeah, so yeah. We just have to take that into account. I have to ask a weird question because I'm curious. Um, as someone who's a food and drug lawyer, I love talking to you because it's just I get I get to learn something really cool. I'm talking to someone who. Oh, by the way, she she does co confirm you are right. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so. Um, I love talking to you because I, I find myself talking to someone who kind of gets what I get and it's fun. But I'm curious, do your kids think you are extremely cool or are you like every other dad? Um, <laughs> let me start by saying there's no way they think I'm like every other dad. Okay, that's good. Uh, I, I definitely have a uh, some some characteristics that are definitely mine. Okay. Uh, uh, they definitely think I'm a nerd, but I think they think I'm a cool nerd. And, okay. and it's partly because food and drug law touches on all of our daily lives and even on sort of popular culture in a way that it's just intrinsically interesting to everybody. Um, and so I'll give you just a short example um, one of my first projects as a food and drug lawyer was um, a milk labeling project. Uh, and I won't get into the details, but, but basically I um, was involved in uh, a post-Nutrition uh, Labeling and Education Act effort to revise milk labeling so that it would be in line with labeling of everything else. And so I submitted a petition as an attorney um, and FDA embraced the petition. And today, for example, 2% milk is reduced fat milk yep. uh, uh, rather than low fat milk because of that petition. Uh, my kids have been heard to tell their friends that my father invented milk labeling. <laughs> so, so is that cool or not cool? I don't know, but it's a pretty, you know, it's, it's a pretty, you know, great thing to be able to say that your dad did. And yeah. I think that they are getting a real kick out of the release of the book because, you know, I had written textbooks before, yeah. uh, um, but to actually see a book, you know, with like a pretty cover and, you know, the, the, uh, the, the blurbs on the back and sold on Amazon and everything, I think that they think that's pretty darn cool. Well, it's, it's funny because Janan's actually a publisher as well. So she is fascinated by these topics as well. So uh, I, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but you, you're definitely cool in my book. Uh, but it's good to know that if and when I have kids, I have a chance that I might be cool. So you've convinced me that I need to add one more question to my list going forward, which is what is one cool fact about you? And I think that would be, you invented milk labeling. I'll take that one. <laughs> and by the way, sheer chance that Janan is from Tennessee. Who'd, who'd have known that the, the random fact I would come up with would be a Tennessee fact? Um, I would have been scared to float it if I'd known there would be an actual person from Tennessee on the call. Well, there are all kinds of people listening in and we're always surprised and welcome all of them coming on. Um, um, and, and I think that was actually the fourth question. So. Do you have anything else you want to add, or um, should we should we hope to get you on next time? I just look forward to speaking to you again at some point in the future. 
Perfect. Louis, thank you again. This was so much fun, as always. I'm excited to have you on again. Uh, thank and, you. And hopefully by then, your book will be sold on Amazon and they'll actually have it. Yeah, I mean, it's selling like hotcakes, everybody. You know, you'll you'll be lucky to get your hand on a copy, but try. I agree. I agree. But thanks again, Louis. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank you.